Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It is finished. In the original language, it's just one word, tetelestai. It's the last word of Jesus before he dies. It is finished. To speak at all would have required amazing willpower because death through crucifixion comes through suffocation. The weight of the body after the shoulders have been dislocated. If you remember when we just read Psalm 22, my bones are out of joint. Hanging, the shoulders are dislocated, the elbows. And so the weight of the body is on the rib cage and puts tremendous pressure on the heart. And in that position, the body is inhaling all the time. To be able to exhale, those who are crucified would try and push themselves up on, the, on their feet. That's why sometimes you'll see on pictures of the cross a little step there. It actually prolonged death because the longer they tried to keep breathing, the longer it took for them to be crucified. Incredibly difficult to talk at that point with inhalation of breath and not the ability to exhale. And yet, Jesus had just turned to his mother and the disciple and given her into his care. And after that, he says this last one word. It is finished. The cross does not have to be understood to be an incredibly powerful symbol. Some of you have heard my story. I was not raised in a Christian family and uh, so was never baptized as a child and um, had uh, was was well, not diagnosed with dyslexia, actually, because I didn't know that's what it was until many, many years later. They just thought I was a bit stupid, a bit slow. And so I was taken out of um, um, the state school, and there were two private girls' schools in town. One was a Roman Catholic convent, and the other one was an Anglican girls' school. I ended up actually at both, but the first one was the Roman Catholic convent. And back then I was very, very shy. And uh, since I didn't know anybody, after eating lunch, I'd go into the chapel by myself. And um, there's still that confluence of smells, kind of slightly old flowers and beeswax candles and holy water that they scented with rose water. And I would walk the stations I had no idea about the story, but I could count, and they were numbered. 
And without fail, I was brought to tears without knowing. So the, the cross has this power to move. But I wanted to know why. Why? What had he done? Why did he have to die like this? And then later on, how was this an effective way? How? What are the mechanics of this death? Wasn't he a good enough man that his teaching would have been an example for us? Could he just not have been an example? The why did he have to die? In this post-enlightenment age where we believe science actually will be able to give us all the answers, we don't like to stay in mystery very long. We want to know exactly what is going on and why. But you know that the more the scientists delve into quantum physics, the more mystery there is in science. When Einstein was working on the equations that are at the heart of his theory of general relativity, he noticed that as written, the universe would be unstable. He figured it would either be expanding or contracting. And thinking that the universe must be stable, he added in a term in the equation called the cosmological constant. And a few years later, Edwin Hubble published his discovery that the universe was, in fact, expanding uniformly in all directions. Einstein later called his unwillingness to trust his equations the biggest mistake of his life. However, decades later, astronomers have noticed that the rate of expansion is not a constant rate. At the edges of the universe, the rate of expansion is accelerating for a completely unknown reason. They will not be able to fathom it out. And they call it dark energy. 70% of the universe is dark energy. Another 25% is made up of dark matter. Only 5% of the universe is made up of what we can see and detect. Science is coming closer to theology to have to live with mystery. We might not be able to comprehend the totality of the why or the how 
of the cross. But God in his holy word does give us some answers. And the first is that neither death nor death by crucifixion took Jesus by surprise. He knew that he came to die. He did not come just to be a good example of a good life. He came to die. After Simon Peter had proclaimed that he was the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said he was going to Jerusalem. And he took the twelve aside and said, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. They will contemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He knew. And as his betrayal drew close, he said, Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It's for this reason that I have come to this hour. This death will draw all people to him. And I, he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John said, he said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The death of God's Messiah was written across the entire Hebrew scriptures. Paul wrote as much to the church in Corinth. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The whole drama of scripture as told in the Old Testament from Adam and Eve's exile from the garden to the exile in Babylon is looking forward in time to a time when God will return because he has promised to do that. He has promised to return himself and rescue his people from exile which has been brought about by sin. We tend to think of sin, don't we, as personal sin. We've kind of been taught that. But there's a a general sin. There's a universal sin. It's not just moral and ethical failure. It actually means, in the original language, missing the mark. It's as if an archer had pulled back the bow and the arrow just goes straight into the ground instead of the bullseye because the mark that we were supposed to be hitting as God's creation, as God's beloved sons and daughters, was to be his image bearers. That was our vocation. We were to be image bearers of the one true God into his creation, showing forth in our lives the good character of God and then to be gathering up all of the praises of creation and giving it back to God. We were to be this mirror between God and his creation and we missed the mark. And in missing the mark, sin And exile happened. We were exiled from God's presence. And every time we choose anger over reconciliation or peace, hatred 
over love, unforgiveness over forgiveness, gossip over holding our tongues, condemnation instead of commendation, injustice instead of justice, we continue to fall short of the mark, which is God's perfect character. Not only that, but when we do that, we feed the dark forces and the dark powers of this world. We give over the power of children of God to the powers of darkness in the world, and they get bloated on our sin. So the only way out of exile was for sin to be dealt with. Sin generally that feeds the forces of evil, that is universal, and sin personally that does the same. And sacrifice, not violence, is the only way for sin to be dealt with, a willing sacrifice, the willing sacrifice of the God-man Jesus, who himself is without sin, and yet on whom all the sins and the evil of the world became focused on the cross. The powers of evil who had started to figure out, you're the son of God, we know who you are, who this was, focused all of their wrath on Jesus on the cross. The powers of evil drew themselves up, focused on destroying Jesus, only to find that in absorbing evil in his sacrifice, he conquered it. It was overcome. Thinking to destroy the Son of Man, they instead were defeated. We declare to you, says Paul, God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The innocent Jesus dies the death of the guilty and in so doing ransoms the guilty from the penalty of sin and exile. And through that sacrifice, the dark forces of the world are conquered and a different power is released into the world. The power of self-giving love. The love of God. That's God's rule. God's rule is the rule of love. The rule of heaven's dimension coming into earth. And then ultimate power is completely redefined in humility and self-sacrifice. The victory, however, comes in two parts. It's begun but it will find its completion when the king returns at the end of the age, when King Jesus comes back. But by the evening of Good Friday, a cataclysmic shift had taken place. What looks like defeat is actually victory. 
and the mocking title above Jesus on the cross has become true. Indeed, the darkness could not overcome the light and never will. Satan, who in the temptations of Jesus could claim authority over the kingdoms of the world, has been dethroned and Jesus has been enthroned as the true king, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or on earth. It's why healings take place in the power of his name. This is what early Christians understood to have happened on that Good Friday almost 2,000 years ago. Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. And the curtain in the temple was torn in two. What does that mean for us? Well, let me let Canon explain it to you. Many years ago at All Saints, we had a vacation Bible school. And there was a little preschooler called Canon. She was four years old. She had the wisdom of somebody much older. And it was Jerusalem Marketplace. And she knew how many tassels were on the shawl of the Pharisees and the priests. And she's just four. And one day, the teacher of the group asked if I'd show the children around the church. And so I took them and we were talking about the ombre. It's also called the tabernacle. And most of them are crawling on the floor under the pews. Others are just lying on the pews. And Canon is there looking at me expectantly. And so I told them it was like the tabernacle and the tabernacle in the desert that had become the temple in Jerusalem. And then out of my mouth comes this question, which in speaking it, I am thinking, what are you doing asking this question of preschoolers? But it was already out. And the question was, does anybody know what happened on Good Friday in the temple? And little Canon puts both of her fists together like this and says, The curtain in the temple was torn in two so that everybody can come into the presence of God, not just the priests. This is what happens on Good Friday. We all get to come into the presence 